I want to go back for just a moment as we are coming to the end of the third missionary journey and look at this chart as we have before. We've used Acts chapter 1 verse 8 as our outline for the book. Naturally fits that. And we'll look at the third section here. This covered about 13 years as we stated last week. The uttermost parts of the earth. That's what we're going into in chapter 13 through 21. This covered about a 13-year period, and then going forward from today, we're looking at uh, all of Paul's trials and imprisonment. That covered roughly about a, a five-year period from what we uh, see here in the book of Acts. Just wanted to look at that just briefly before we head into this particular section. And uh, let's do our memory work as we, before we get to the map. Let's start at chapter 15. That might be a, maybe an easier one to start with. Acts chapter 15. For those of you who are visiting, we do a little bit of memory work before we get started here. Get us uh, pumped up and get, get us ready to go today. So Acts 15 is what? Circumcision discussion. Acts 16. Okay, second missionary journey, we've got Philippi and Paul and Silas are in prison. Acts 17, Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. Uh, you'll find the lesson on Mars Hill there in Acts 17. Acts 18, Corinth, and we're introduced to Aquila and Priscilla in that chapter. Acts 19. Ephesus and the riot in Ephesus and 20. We studied last week. Troas. And then the last part of the chapter is Ephesian elders. Acts 21. What city are we in in Acts 21? Jerusalem. And then what happens in Jerusalem? What happens to Paul? He's beaten and arrested. All right. Acts chapter 21. Read with me, if you will, beginning of verse 1. He <clears throat> reads, And when it came to pass that we were parted from them and had, had set sail, we came with a straight course unto Kos, and the next day unto Rhodes. Now, if you look in your, on your map, in the very far left-hand corner, you'll see Miletus. We talked about Miletus last week in Acts 20, where he met the Ephesian elders, talked to them. And from there, he's going to go, you'll see the dotted line on the map. The dotted line goes, well, next major city would be Patara. And then they're going to venture off into the Great Sea, straight through uh, or past Cyprus over to Tyre. So keep that in mind as we look at these cities here. Verse 2, or rather, uh, last part of verse 1, he from thence went to Patara. Having found a ship crossing over into Phoenicia, we went abroad and set sail. When we had come into the side of Cyprus, you see that island of Cyprus there that would be on their left-hand side, verse 3, we left it on the left hand, we sailed unto Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was unlaid to unlaid her burden. <clears throat> the cities that we see here, it's interesting, and we'll see some of this later in the book of Acts. It mentions these cities, and, and this is one of those places where, as we did in Acts 
18, we don't want to look at the proconsul Gallio and just pass right over it. Some of these cities can be, through archaeological discoveries, be verified that these cities are right along the seacoast and would have been at that time. And some of that goes to authenticate the book of Acts for us to make it even more genuine. And, uh, but it's interesting, telling the story, Luke mentions these cities. Kind of incidentally, it seems, but perhaps there's more to it than meets the eye. And I think there, there is, certainly. Verse 4, having found the disciples there in Tyre, and notice that Tyre would be, as you're over in the area of Palestine now, just a little bit north of there is Tyre. That's the first city they came to, and then Ptolemaeus, and then Caesarea. So verse 4, having found the disciples, we tarried there seven days, and these said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not set foot in Jerusalem. This is going to be a familiar, familiar story that Paul hears on his way back to Jerusalem. And perhaps he's heard that really ever since Acts chapter 20, verse 3. Go back to Acts 20, verse 3. Remember we pointed out that verse 3 of Acts 20 is really a, a major shift in the agenda of the ministry of Paul. Things change now, and, and beginning in Acts chapter 20, verse 3. And so many of these cities that he goes to, people warn him not to go to Jerusalem. And here, as it mentions verse 4 of this chapter, it is through the Spirit that they tell him not to go. There are troubles, there are trials, there's bonds and afflictions that await him there. He knew that. He was headed there anyway, and perhaps this fits well with his statement in Acts 20. Last week we looked at verse 24. He said, I hold not my life of any account as dear unto myself, so that I may accomplish my course. Paul said that. He stood behind it. He believed it. It wasn't just merely words that he was stating. He really, truly believed it. And we quoted also Philippians 1, 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now we continue, verse 5, when it came to pass that we had accomplished the days, we departed, went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, brought us on our way till we were out of the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and bade each other farewell. We went on board the ship, and they returned to their home. And I find it very impressive that all along the way, Paul is not interested in sightseeing, he's not interested in an adventure, he is interested in saints and brethren all along the way on these cities. He wants to see these brethren, perhaps some of them again, some of them perhaps for the first time. He, he is interested, and I find it very interesting that he's anxious to see saints in every city. He's not along for a ride. He's not in an adventure. He's not there to see the sights. He's along the way to minister to the Lord, and uh, we see that he's anxious here, it seems, in every city to see saints there. <clears throat> now we continue on, verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we saluted the brethren there, and abode there with them one day. On the morrow, we went down to Caesarea. Caesarea, they uh, meet a man named Philip. This is, uh, we're introduced to Philip in Acts chapter 6, one of the seven that ministered 
unto the Grecian widows in Acts chapter 6. Later, he would convert the Ethiopian eunuch, and at the end of that chapter, chapter 8, you remember it says he was found, went through Azotus, and then he went on to Caesarea, and perhaps he's there here, uh, stayed there quite some time, or maybe all that time. Verse 8, in Caesarea, they found one Philip the evangelist, had daughters that were four virgin daughters that were prophesied as well. And as they were there, verse 10, as they were there at Caesarea with Philip and his family, who comes to see Paul? Agabus. Agabus, we saw in Acts chapter 11, the end of chapter 11, he prophesied of the famine in Jerusalem, and that occurred. Here we see he comes to Paul, and he has another uh, prophecy to give personally to Paul, and what is that? Bonds and afflictions await you in Jerusalem. When you, it gives a symbolic picture here to Paul. He takes his girdle, binds it, his hands and feet with it, and he says, basically, verse 11, this is what's going to happen to you when you go to Jerusalem. Did that deter Paul? Didn't deter Paul. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. Verse 12, when he heard these things, both we and they of the place. Now, notice in verse 12, it seems that Paul's company with him join in this chorus to say, don't go to Jerusalem. Does that deter Paul? No. Even his closest companions in ministry and in travel, Paul answered in verse 13 and 14, don't break my heart. Don't do this to me. I am ready to be bound for the name of the Lord Jesus, even to die, verse 13, at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be persuaded, they resigned themselves to the fact that, well, this must be the Lord's will. May the Lord's will be done. We see the determination of Paul, his intent, He's very intent to go to Jerusalem. And you have to sit back and look at a situation like this and wonder why would somebody go right in the middle of a problem? We've seen many times that he's avoided problems, even moved from one city to another when it was necessary for his safety. But now it's come a point in time where Paul must have resigned himself to the fact that he has to go to Jerusalem. If you recall Romans chapter 9, the first few verses of Romans chapter 9, Paul had great sorrow in his heart for his people, the fleshly Israel, for his brethren. And he says there in the first few verses of Romans 9, he says, I could wish that I myself were accursed if it could be for the sake of Israel, their, their salvation, but that was not the case. And we see somebody that is so intent on and, and so sorrowful over Israel and their salvation that he's willing to make a statement like that. And I think what we're seeing here is that that mentality that he has, we're seeing this played out before our eyes in Acts chapter 21. Somebody that wants this, to see the salvation of many more Jews than that he has seen. And he's 
intent to take the gospel to them yet again. And so many of these people have already tried to, to kill him, tried to get him kicked out of the cities and so forth. They've dogged his trail all along the way. And Paul is still intent on going to Jerusalem. Verse 15, after these days, we took up our baggage, went up to Jerusalem. There went with us certain of the disciples of Caesarea, Nason of Cyprus, and we stayed with him. Now, verse 17, we finally come to Jerusalem. Verse 17, when we come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with, the, with us unto James and all the elders who were present. Now, let's pause there for just a moment, and we will uh, catch up on our outline here. So, we've gone to Tyre. He's warned not to go to Jerusalem. Ptolemaeus, he greeted the brethren there. Caesarea, again, he's warned by Agabus, don't go to Jerusalem. And then we come to Jerusalem, and uh, you can put a mark here that this is basically the end of the third missionary journey here at this point. Now, something happens here as well as we get to verse 17 and 18. As the brethren have come to Jerusalem, Paul and his companions have come to Jerusalem, there we would find a connection here to Romans chapter 15, verse 26. If you'll turn there, Romans 15, verse 26. Paul states there about the bounty that he was carrying with him to Jerusalem he had, they had picked this up from the brethren in Macedonia. The brethren in Macedonia and Achaia were so generous that they wanted to contribute to the needy saints in Jerusalem. Romans 15 verse 26 alludes to that, that idea, and that apparently is what has happened here, if we would insert that in these verses. They have brought this bounty to Jerusalem, and they have brought the uh, bounty intending to help the needy saints there. Romans 15, verse 26. All right, let's, uh, we'll pause there for any comments or thoughts. We'll pause it at verse 18. <clears throat> in, in Acts 24 and verse 17, Paul recounting these events, he said, uh, after several years I came to bring alms to my nation to pre- present offerings. I think that's what you were talking about there in the Roman letter. Okay, very good. That's Acts 24, verse 17. All right, anything else? Yes. Paul knew the risk of uh, imprisonment, and he went anyways, just like anybody today would go anywhere where they knew they probably wouldn't be warmly welcomed. Um, when you're when you're concerned about the saints, and you're concerned about your brethren, and you're concerned about God's word being spread and you have this desire for a certain people to come to Christ because you love them because you knew them you don't care if you go to prison or not you just mm-hmm. want want them to be saved and it's kind of like when Jesus came into Jerusalem and they 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 were celebrating him and he was weeping because he knew what their destiny destiny was what that in 70 AD they would be totally destroyed for 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 killing him but yet he went anyways because he loved us more than he loved his own life so same thing okay 
All right, thank you. Okay, if you will, uh, think for just a moment with me. Imagine you're in Paul's company. You come to Jerusalem. There are many people gathered there because of the day of Pentecost. A lot of people in town. And Paul is going right in the middle of a hornet's nest. But he went there intending to. He meant to go there. He knew what he was facing. He meets with James and the elders in verse 18 the next day. Rehearses with them his ministry, all the successes and things that they have done. And they rejoice with him. But they say, Paul, we've got a problem. Do you realize where you are? Do you realize what your teaching has caused? It's not just in Jerusalem. It's in every city that he's gone into, particularly where there's Jews and Gentiles. He has stirred up problems simply by preaching the gospel. And we continue Acts 21, verse 19. The brethren, he saluted them, rehearsed with them all these things. They glorified God in verse 20. And when he finished, they, they rejoiced with him and said, But you realize that every city there's so many Jews that are zealous for the law. And verse 21, they have been informed concerning thee that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after their customs. What is it therefore? Certainly hear that they will hear that you are here. So we have a problem on our hands. So what, uh, what they do, they inform Paul or remind him rather of his reputation with the Jews. There's the problem. Also the problem that you teach the Jews not to keep the law of Moses. Now, was that exactly what Paul taught? Not really. That's an inflammatory way of, that's their perspective. The solution they have is to take four men with you with a vow, purify yourself with them, and then this will perhaps solve the problem. So the eventual outcome, hopefully, is Paul can prove that he's not against keeping the law of Moses. And we'll use that that phrase accommodatively here in the context of what we're talking about here. Paul certainly did not believe that the law of Moses was still in effect. But the hopeful outcome by these brethren is that Paul can prove to these Jews here in Jerusalem that he is not against keeping the law of Moses. Now let's continue our reading verse 21. They have been informed, these Jews have been informed that you teach the Jews everywhere among the Gentiles, to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. Let's go on down to verse uh, 23. Do this, therefore. We've got an idea. This probably will solve the problem. Take these four men that have a vow on them and purify thyself with them, apparently this being the Nazarite vow, and be at charges for them. Pay their, pay their way, verse 24. They may shave their heads, and all shall know that there is no truth in the things that they've heard about you. Because they will see you in the temple, they will see you with these men. 
purifying yourself with them and for them so that they can fulfill their Nazarite vow at the temple and take their hair and burn it at the altar. And you can be involved and you can pay for their way. And there, everybody will see you there and know that there is no truth. And I sit back and I think about this idea. Of course, we have the advantage of seeing what took place. But it doesn't look like a very good idea, does it? And we can say that because we can look and retrospect at the end of the chapter and see how it turned out. Now, let's continue our reading here, verse 25. As touching the Gentiles that had believed, we wrote, giving judgment that they would keep themselves from things sacrificed to idols, from blood, from those things that are strangled, and from fornication. And if you recall in Acts chapter 15, verse 29, when they concluded their discussion, that was the statement that they let the people take with them, that uh, we are not compelling you to be circumcised, but keep yourselves from these things. And basically, James and the elders there at Jerusalem are saying, we haven't changed that particular stance. We haven't changed our attitude toward that. Verse 29, then Paul followed through with this. He took them in and the next day purified himself with them, went into the temple declaring the days of, of purification until the offering was offered for every one of them. Now, let's catch up with our outline so far. Paul meets here with James and the elders. And you'll notice that it's James and the elders, not the apostles and the elders like it was in Acts 15. Now it's James and the other elders. The, Paul agrees to purify himself with these men. And we will see here that the Jews uh, accuse Paul. And uh, finding him in the temple and accusing him. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the multitude and laid hands upon him. Notice that these Jews here, verse 27, are from Asia. Paul had been to Asia. He had been to Asia preaching, spent a lot of time in Asia, I mean, in Ephesus, three years, so that you recall how many people in Asia heard the word you remember back in Acts 19, how many people? All that were in Asia uses that term. Many people heard in Asia. So these Jews from Asia, verse 27, saw him in the temple, stirred up the multitude, and they laid hands upon him, crying out. And I want you to get the feel and the, the atmosphere in Jerusalem. There's a lot of people there. A lot of hostility toward Paul, and he's been there for several days now, and all it took was, you might say, a little spark. Somebody to stand up and say, oh, here's Paul, look what he's doing. Verse 28, they cried out, men of Israel, help, this is the man that teaches all men everywhere against the people, against the law and this place. So first of all, here's the first part of the accusation. He teaches all men everywhere against our people, against the law of Moses, and against the temple here. The second part of the accusation is in the last part of verse 28, and moreover, he brought Greeks or Gentiles into the temple, a thing you were not supposed to do, and he has defiled this holy place. 
Verse 29 will go on to explain that they thought they saw him with Trophimus, an Ephesian, bringing him into the temple like it was nothing, but that was uh, another thing where they jumped to a conclusion in verse 29. So here's the accusation, verse 28. They, they said, he's the one that's gone around teaching everyone in every city against the Jews, against our law, against the temple, and now he's brought Gentiles into the temple. Some false accusations there, aren't there? Some very inflammatory accusations, and it reminds me of the accusations against Christ as he faced the Jews, the wrath of the Jews. That same type of wrath is being meted out upon Paul himself now. Paul is finding himself taking the example of Jesus and being willing to lay down his life for the gospel, and that's exactly what it's going to take. I want you to, let's, let's pause there for a minute in the reading and think for just a minute. <clears throat> well, let's, let's go on and read, I want to read a couple more verses here, and then we'll think about this. Verse 30, all the city was moved. The people ran together. They laid hold upon Paul. They dragged him out of the temple. Straightway, the doors were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, tidings came up to the chief captain of the band or the tribune of the band. All, the Jeru- all Jerusalem was now in confusion. Imagine the chaos in the city. And Paul is at the center of it. Now, let's sit back for just a minute and think about Paul, you know, we, we've already talked about, he's seen warning after warning after warning, don't go to Jerusalem, but he was intent on going. Why would he go? We talked about Romans 9. He, he, I could wish that myself were accursed for the sake of my people, my fleshly brethren, that they would believe in large measure. But I think also about a statement that he made in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20, beginning. If you will turn with me there, it shows the attitude of Paul. Not only now, but all throughout his ministry, he's had this particular attitude and this mindset about teaching and preaching to Jew and Gentile alike. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20, to the Jews, I became a Jew, that I might gain the Jews to them that are under the law as under the law. Not being myself under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. Now, what did he do about the Gentiles? Verse 21, to them that are without the law, the Gentiles, I behave with them as without the law, not being without the law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without the law. To the weak I became weak, to the, that I might gain the weak. I am become all things to all men that I might, by all means, save some. I do all things for the gospel's sake. So when he goes to Jerusalem, knowing what lies in front of him, knowing what's there, knowing the problems that are there, why would he go to Jerusalem after all? You know, you think about how many cities he went into and the, the Jews sought 
to kill him. They were chasing him out of town, left and right. You know, if it was me, I would sit back at some point and say, you know, I'm just going to give up on the Jews. I'm just about ready to, to write them off. Wouldn't you feel that way? I'm about ready to just write them off and just preach exclusively to the Gentiles. But as we just read, 1 Corinthians 9 says, I became all things to all people that I might save some. I do all things for the gospel's sake. He's never giving up on them. You see that? What a beautiful picture. He's never going to give up. They had all, they had the promises, they had the law, they had all these blessings. And Paul, he was not wanting to give up on them. To the Jews, and, and a lot of this goes to explain why he did what he did with taking these four men too. Taking these four men and, the, and purifying yourself with them. Why would he go through such a, a custom as that? Because to the Jews, I became a Jew. Even though he's saying, I'm, I'm not a Jew. In the sense that it's still uh, under that law. Now, let's, I want to, let's look back and see. He's been accused of a lot of things here in this chapter. A lot of it not quite true. What exactly did Paul teach about the law of Moses? And we'll, this will explain a lot about what the James and the elders said to him, and it'll explain a little bit about his mentality. Not only is he trying to be a Jew to the Jews and a Gentile, he became all things to all people that he might save some. But exactly what did he teach about the law of Moses? In Colossians 2, which he hasn't actually written at this point, and he will later, I think it still applies though, Colossians 2 verse 14 says, the old law, the bond written in ordinances was nailed to the cross. Romans 7 verse 6, what did Paul say about the Old Testament there? Talking about the Old Testament law, Romans 7 verse 6 says, but now we have been discharged from the law, having died to that wherein we were held, so that we serve in newness of the spirit, not in oldness of the letter. He's saying we've been released from the law. Galatians 3, verse 24 and 25 says the law is our tutor to bring us to Christ. If the law is our tutor, he goes on to say the tutor is not necessary anymore. Therefore, we no longer need a tutor. We no longer need the Old Testament. That's what he's saying. The law is our tutor to bring us to Christ. We no longer need that. That's what he's saying there in Galatians 3. 1 Corinthians 9, as we just read. Galatians 5 will use a, a rite of circumcision. He says circumcision is nothing. It doesn't profit anything. Galatians 5, well, let's look at a couple of verses there. Galatians 5, verse 3, I testify to every man that receives circumcision that he's a debtor, not only to do circumcision, but to do how much of the law? The whole law. Do all the law. Verse 4, you're severed from Christ. You, if you would be justified by the law, the law of Moses, you've fallen away from grace. Verse 6, he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails you anything, doesn't profit you anything at all. Now, if you want to keep it, that's fine. 
That's where Romans 14 here would come into play. Perhaps there were many Jews that wanted to keep certain observance of meats, certain days. Romans 14 appeals to those people by saying that Romans 14 verse 22, God's really indifferent. If you want to observe certain days and meats, that's fine. Do that under yourself as personal faith between you and your God. But here's the point. Do not compel others to do so. That's the problem. When you venture beyond yourself and you compel others to keep circumcision, compel others to keep certain days and you judge them by not doing so, compel others to abstain from certain meats, you have gone beyond. Paul is saying God's indifferent to to that. So this is what Paul taught about the law of Moses. All right, we'll go back to uh, Acts 20 and verse 31. We left off with Paul being beaten. They're ready to kill him. And then the Roman leaders find out. And perhaps if it wasn't for the Roman leaders there in, in that area, Paul probably would have been killed. The Roman leaders come and what happens? They stop because they recognize the Roman authority as supreme, don't they? They recognize that as the supreme authority. They're over the Jews. The authority comes in and they put a stop to this commotion and this beating and killing. All right, before we continue, any, uh, any thoughts or comments to the, up to this point? Got one over here. Along with that list of um, things that Paul taught about uh, the the law, uh, since it's possible, he wrote Hebrews as well. Hebrews ten one says, "For the law, having the, a shadow of the thing of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect." So, just uh, e- either parallel or continued. Uh, along the same line, mm-hmm. um, that the, some of the traditions were not um, necessary, and and in the the verse you talked about in First Corinthians nine said when when he was dealing with the Gentiles, he was not under that law, but under the law of Christ. So that was his law. He he had something newer, better. If you were a member of the church at uh, Corinth or whatever, and or Ephesus, and uh, you, your family followed circumcision. Would Paul come to you and tell you to stop doing that? No, he wouldn't. He might preach to you, what, like we've seen here in Galatians 5, circumcision nor uncircumcision either way helps you or profits you any at all before God. But if you personally <clears throat> do that as your personal faith toward God, he's not going to say you must dismiss that. You must stop that. Uh, and that's his teaching. That's, uh, hopefully we've looked at that after some of the uh, misaccusations that we see here in this chapter that are uh, attributed to Paul. All right, uh, verse 32. Forthwith he took soldiers. Now realize that now we've come to the point where the Roman leaders find out They come down here and break up this 
mob. They took soldiers and centurions, they ran down upon them, and they, when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left off beating Paul. It's interesting, the Jews are such a riotous and unruly bunch of people, the, uh, but they certainly recognize when the authority is there. They recognize that. <clears throat> the chief captain came near, laid hold on him, commanded him to be bound with two chains, and still they dragged, they dragged him out. The uproar of the people is such that they can hardly <clears throat> get him into the castle in verse 34. So they had to bear him up, carry him up, verse 35, up the stairs. The soldiers had to carry him up for the violence of the crowd and the multitude of the people. Verse 36 followed after, saying, away with him. There again, I'm reminded of what the crowds thought about Jesus. Away with him. Crucify him. That's the same kind of anger that is directed toward Paul now. Away with him. By the way, in, uh, at this point, I'm reminded also about the Old Testament law and commandment. In Exodus 23, verse 1 and 2, it says, Run not with a multitude or a mob to do evil. So many times the Jews broke that commandment. Run not with a multitude or a mob to do evil. And here... They're doing that very thing. Verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the castle, he said unto the chief captain, may I say something? At this point, they recognize that he knows Greek. And he says, you must be that Egyptian that stirred up so much trouble back before in verse uh, 38, led people out to the wilderness and the 4,000 men of the assassins. You must be that man. So you've come to Jerusalem causing a lot of problems. Paul said, no, I'm not that man. I am a Jew. I am of Tarsus, no mean city, not a, not a little wide spot in the road. I am a Jew. I'm of Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I beseech thee, give me leave to speak to the people. And aren't you impressed that they've tried, they've beat him, they've tried to kill him. And Paul still wants to speak to these people. Does that not impress you? That's very impressive to me. A man that is so intent on preaching the gospel to these people that somehow, some way, I might save some more people. Looking for opportunity instead of just writing them off. Verse 40, when he had given him leave, Paul, standing at the stairs, beckoned with a hand unto the people, and when there was a great silence, he spake unto them in the Hebrew language. Very, Paul is such a very well-fitted person for the job that he has and the job that he's done. He's a Roman citizen, born as a Roman citizen. He's a Jew, a Jew of all Jews, very well versed in the Greek culture as well. And he's gone through all these cities in Rome, in the Roman Empire, to teach and to preach. 
And all of this has well suited him to reach people that might not otherwise have been reached. And now he's ready to speak to his fleshly brethren in their own language so they can hear him and they can realize who he is, what he's come out of, and how he has changed as well, what, what Christ has done to him to change him. Any thoughts? <clears throat> yep, we've got one comment here. He was not afraid to move forward, but we also need to remember his physical condition at this point. You know, if you think about what he's been through, not only just right then, but through his life, this was not his first beating. Mm -hmm. And his physical condition was not good. But he he didn't think about himself at all. He only Mm -hmm. thought about bringing people to Christ. But he had to be carried upstairs, partly because of the mob, but probably partly Mm -hmm. because he probably couldn't make it up the stairs. And so his physical condition, and yet all he cared about was the people and making sure they had the opportunity to hear about what Christ had done for them. There comes a point in everyone's ministry that, as Paul did here, he has to go forward. And that is to say that he knows what lies Uh, The danger that lies ahead of him in Jerusalem, he goes anyway at this point. He must have such a yearning in his heart for these Jews, and he does, that he's willing to lay down his life for them, isn't he? And that's what we saw in the previous chapter, Acts 20, verse 24. I count not my life dear to, to hold on to my life. When he looks at the those that need the gospel and his life, He says, I choose to preach and to bear my soul to those that that need the gospel. Still yet, never gave up on them. If I could leave leave us with this one thought here. 1 Corinthians 9, I want to go back to this again. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20 through 22. This is the mentality that Paul had in this chapter that caused him to do what he did, to go into Jerusalem in the first place, into this hornet's nest, that caused him to even be willing to go with these men, to purify himself with them, and go into the temple and do these things that he didn't feel was necessary, but he did them anyway for the sake of those that needed the gospel. All of these things, i am become a Jew to those that are Jews. i am become a Gentile to those that are Gentiles. I do all things for the gospel's sake. And if anything sums up Paul's mentality in this chapter, I think that does as much as anything. Thank you for your thoughts and participation.